Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today what you see on your screen is just a big, ripe, somewhat pixelated, polygonal banana. And the reason for that banana is, of course, the bananas in Fortnite. We like to refer to this as the Apple versus banana case. And if you haven't been following it, we've got a video series for you. This will be the 19th video in Epic versus Everyone. And apologies, Google and Android fans. There hasn't been a lot going on over on that side. I have been keeping track of it in case something big happens. But for right now, what we are discussing is the fact that Epic and Apple continue to be locked into a series of escalating documents about whether or not a preliminary injunction should issue from the court that either forces Fortnite to be on the store, allows Apple to get rid of Fortnite as they already have, and or requires Apple to not take retaliatory action against Epic subsidiaries, most particularly the subsidiary in charge of the Unreal Engine. So if you go and you look at this list, you can see the two videos that most directly impact our discussion right now is Epic versus Apple. Epic makes its strongest case yet, but is it enough in which Epic filed for this preliminary injunction, a long document, which we covered extensively in that video. And then Apple responded in the video called Apple Goes After Epic's Unreal Engine, A Trojan Horse, in which they tried to describe the fact that if they allowed Epic to just do whatever they wanted, put whatever code they wanted in, do what they did in order to get this hotfix, quote unquote, past their internal review process, then they could be exposing their company, their hardware, and their hardware users to malware and all number of very, very bad things. Now, in response to that document, which we covered only a few days ago, Epic has filed the following opposition to Apple's opposition. And this should be Epic's last word on this. You never quite know because there can be emergency documents filed. Apple could return some kind of argument that Epic wants to ask for special permission to respond to and all of those things. But for right now, this is Epic's final push to get that injunction, which will require Apple to allow them to have Fortnite with direct pay on their store. And this represents a very important step in the early days of this very, very, very significant legal battle. So let's take a look at what Epic put together. Here they describe what they are looking for as follows. Epic seeks one thing only, to offer consumers an alternative payment processing service that allows consumer choice and lower prices while this litigation proceeds without retaliation. They want to have Fortnite on the iOS, in the Apple App Store, with a direct payment option, presumably turning back on the in-app payment purchasing option that Apple would have them put in there that they have removed. And we'll talk about that as part of this document. And they describe it as the cleanest, easiest thing in the world to understand. At that point, Apple should, should Apple prevail, it can be made whole. If Apple wins the case, they can be made whole. They can get money from Epic, so nobody should worry about it. And you should give us this injunction. But during the pendency of the case, consumers should not be harmed by Apple's overwhelming retaliation against Epic. You'll see that word a lot. We have seen that word a lot. Retaliation is designed to evoke this concept in the judge's mind, in the reader's mind, that Apple has no reason for doing these things against Epic other than the fact that they are trying to quash their antitrust case against them. And Apple has put forth in a number of documents now that they have any number of other reasons, and you can 
believe them, disbelieve them, however you are so inclined. But Apple says security is one reason. Listening to our contracts is another reason. All these various things. Epic basically has to come out and say, that's all pretext, your honor. They just want to kick our case out of court by making it as painful as possible to pursue it. Apple's papers try to make this dispute about Apple's innovative products rather than Apple's practices. Many monopolists start with extraordinary products, yet courts have to step in if they use their power to stifle competition. Now, we've talked about this in the past, but this is one of the big areas in which Epic has a tough case to make, right? It is not illegal to be a monopoly. As a first step, courts ask if there's monopoly power. Then courts ask if that leading position was gained or maintained through improper conduct. Obtaining a monopoly by superior products, innovation, or business acumen is legal. For instance, the monopolist may be competing on the merits in a way that benefits consumers through greater efficiency or a unique set of products. It's one of the things we've talked about in this space. Apple really can go and make the argument that they put forth a walled garden, that people like that user experience, like the fact that somebody somewhere is sitting in a room reviewing these apps as they come in, and that is the product that Apple sells. That sense of safety and security, whether or not they're any good at it. A lot of commenters have come into my videos and said, well, Apple is terrible at this, and they let WeChat on and TikTok on, and they could have compromised everybody's data across the country. That may well be true, but Apple has the business reason, justification, legitimate business justification to go forth and say, we're selling this walled garden, and whether or not they should be able to do so is really the heart of this case. In the end, courts will decide whether the monopolist's success is due to the willful acquisition or maintenance of that power as distinguished from growth or development as a consequence of a superior product, business acumen, or historic accident. You see example, the Microsoft case here at the bottom. We'll get back to that. So ultimately, when Epic says many monopolists start with extraordinary products, that almost sounds to me like a concession. Of course, the iPhone is extraordinary. It was nothing a decade ago, and now it's 1.5 billion units out there in the world. That is significant. That means they were doing something right. That's a hill that Epic really does struggle to climb in all of these documents. But Apple routinely allows third-party payment processing in other apps, including Amazon and Uber, and Apple identified no evidence that Epic's direct payment or any Epic product posed an actual security threat. Indeed, they really haven't. They've said that this could be a threat in the future. And certainly if you don't penalize them now, if you force us to keep Fortnite up on our store, that presents a problem for us, primarily not because of what they did, but because of how they did it. Apple has really hung their hat on this Tim Sweeney emails at two in the morning. The app had actually been changed two weeks prior. They didn't tell us what that change actually did. And then they implemented this quote unquote hot fix, which we're going to talk about as part of this document. And they surreptitiously snuck in a change, not just in the content of the product. And that's what Epic is going to try to confuse here. They have been in the past. Hot fixes do change content. Server-side stuff does change content. The costumes available in the Fortnite store change, I think, every day. But that is distinct from changing the actual functionality of the application, which Epic, despite trying to hand wave at it throughout all of these documents, has to, at the end of the day, admit that they did. Through this two-step process, they changed the functionality of how payments are collected through their application in a way that directly violated Apple's contract. Now, maybe Apple's contract is illegal. I know a number of you have come into this space in my comments that it is illegal, Rick. Why are you siding with Apple on all of this? And the truth is, I'm not siding 
with anybody. I am trying to explain what I see in the law and Epic is presenting a novel case. Now, novel cases can win the day, but when you're analyzing them, if you were sitting in front of me in my office, I would say, well, that's a weak case. That's a hard case to win because it's never happened before. Apple owns the hardware. They created operating system software for that hardware. And so, yes, from a technical definitional standpoint, they have a monopoly and access to that software. But does that mean it is a legal capital M monopoly under the Sherman Act? And there I have my doubts. Turning to the merits, in its opening brief, Epic showed that Apple is a monopolist in two markets for iOS app distribution and for iOS in-app payment processing, and that it illegally maintains its monopolies through unlawful contractual ties and technical restrictions that foreclose all competition. They have two primary methods that they're going after this thing. And this is the merits of their overall case, which are important to seeking a preliminary injunction. They want to say that Apple is maintaining its monopoly illegally, and they are tying together in-app payment processing with app distribution in a way that they will say is per se illegal. In other words, is illegal no matter whether or not it has any effect on any relevant markets. It is so bad that the courts just say, this is illegal. Now, I don't think they can win that case at all. We'll talk about that as well as part of this document. But that's what they're trying to establish. So they have to establish both that they have monopoly power and that that monopoly power is used in some illegal way, maintenance or tying. Yet, Apple baldly asserts that it is no monopolist, asking this court to believe that iPhones are interchangeable with personal computers and gaming consoles. That assertion is contrary to basic antitrust principles and common sense. A Sony PlayStation does not fit in your pocket but a smartphone does. And that introduces a whole number of things. We are going to get to this later in the document when they really go into market establishment and why I think their definitions aren't as good as Apple's, but this is a subjective kind of consideration. But what they're trying to say here is that selling you Fortnite access on a Sony PlayStation is not the same as selling you access on the iOS. Now, note they don't bring up the Nintendo Switch. If you have a big enough pocket, the Nintendo Switch probably does fit in it, maybe not comfortably, maybe a Switch Lite, but they don't bring them up because that's a harder case for them to make. Ultimately, though, the question is, and you can think about this as you watch this video or as you contemplate it later, does Epic have a different market to sell Fortnite in to primarily the same audience, primarily still be able to run their business? And do they have a fundamental legal right to access iOS hardware owners just because there are a lot of them? And that's what they'd certainly like you to believe. That's what they'd like the judge to believe. But I think that has some issues of its own. Apple also argues that its web of restrictions is not anti-competitive because they create an integrated service that is the basis of its iPhone business model. But Apple cannot immunize these restrictions from antitrust scrutiny by labeling them a business model. Now, that's true on its face. You can't just name something positive and say you don't have to go through Sherman Act analysis if you are otherwise operating illegally. Nor can Apple credibly insist that IAP is an inseparable aspect of the App Store, that they are a single product when Apple already allows many apps to use alternative pay options and... Many in-app transactions occur days, months, or years after the app is downloaded from the app store. Now, I think A is a better argument. Okay, you can't say it's a single product if you allow other people to get outside of it is interesting, right? That is an interesting rhetorical device. To some extent, that's true. It isn't a fully integrated offering, 
because we allow you to get out of this particular piece of it. That being said, they still are tied very strongly together and you have to take an extra step to get outside of it. And Apple makes these certain allowances for these things, which Apple would describe, I believe, as we can say from all of the documents that they've put forth so far, don't represent that security threat, don't represent that brand threat like Uber, like other real life services. And as we will see, I think now in-person interactions because there was some negative publicity brought about with all of 2020 happening and whether or not schools and school-related apps could have things like video streaming. And Apple tries to make that distinction, but Epic raises a good point. If you can separate it at all, is it an integrated product? Now, I would suggest that it still is because it was always offered as one piece and exceptions to that don't prove that it wasn't integrated, but you know, reasonable minds can differ on that score. The weaker argument here is that many in-app transactions occur days, months, or years after the app is downloaded from the App Store. The date of download to me is not terribly useful a bit of information because according to Apple, and I don't really think Epic disputes this, Apple is going over, is reviewing all of these apps, reviewing everything that goes into the app process, including exactly what your market is doing, what your functionality is through the app store, not approving your content necessarily. It's not approving the fish costume or the various banana men uh, in Fortnite, but it is doing some work. And as Apple has said, what it is selling is investment in the Apple brand, investment in the Apple hardware, all of this effort, effort to pay people in rooms to review these various applications and to help make their user base feel like they're getting something for that Apple premium. Apple also cannot dispute direct evidence of separate demand for payment processing services, including the robust demand for such services on eligible categories of iOS apps and open platforms. Eligible here, I believe, meaning the physical kind of concept, your Ubers of the world. And Apple's new disclosure that we talked about last week, that over the years, Apple has terminated the accounts of no fewer than 2,000 developers who introduced alternative payment processors. It is clear that developers are clamoring for competition. Now, that's one way to frame that, right? Apple brought up the 2,000 developers that they kicked off the App Store to show that they were doing things, to show that they were enforcing their contractual policies, exactly how they operated under those contracts, and that they were, in fact, looking to maintain the App Store in what they view as a relatively secure position. Epic has spun that around and said, hey, if you're doing that, if there are 2,000 of them, then 2,000 developers wanted to have their own direct payment option, give or take. They didn't all have to mirror what Epic has put in there. But that's not really a surprise, right? They say they're clamoring for competition. Apple would say, yes, 2,000 people wanted to not pay us for access and for the other things that we provide when that is in fact the way that we pay for this system. That's the business model. That is what we have determined makes sense. And they didn't want to follow the contract. And so we kicked them off just like we kicked you off. We have been even handed about this, even though Epic, you have in the past made us hundreds of millions of dollars. Continuing with Epic's statement, one of the things that they say here is interesting, but I saw it mentioned to me in various messages when this document first came out. I do apologize. This document is is three days old. I mean, what am I even doing, right? But Epic is doing precisely what the Supreme Court has instructed that Epic is entitled to do. Refuse to comply with anti-competitive contractual conditions. Epic and the public should be protected from Apple's retaliation. Apple has no valid response. Now, Apple didn't respond to this concept, 
because they basically won the concept at the temporary restraining order level. Now, this can change. Temporary restraining order is the pause button. It is even more preliminary than the preliminary injunction. But at the temporary restraining order level, the court said as follows. Indeed, the cases mentioned in passing during the August 24th, 2020 hearing and unbriefed by Epic do not appear to change the analysis. These cases stand for the proposition that the doctrines of unclean hands and in peri delicto, that two parties are responsible, are not recognized as a defense to antitrust claims. The issue of affirmative defenses is not currently before the court. And this was all in response to this notion that Epic is trying to get around, that they breached a contract and they shouldn't have any consequences towards that breach. The court at the temporary restraining order level said, hey, the current predicament is of their own making. Epic Games remains free to maintain its agreements and breach status. But as the Seventh Circuit recognized, the sensible way to proceed would be to comply with your agreements and then to continue to operate while it builds a record. The way Epic handled all of this, we will see, is one of the biggest barriers to their actually winning a preliminary injunction that they want. If Epic hadn't breached their contract, if they instead had just said, we want to do this, they had that email exchange with Apple, Apple said no, and then Epic sued them with that email in their back pocket, then they could have proceeded with this lawsuit. Fortnite would still be available on the iPhone. Yes, they'd be sharing the money, but maybe there'd be a damage claim at the end of it if Epic won the day and Apple would owe their cut back. Instead, the court, I think rightly, looks at this and says, okay, well, you sued them for antitrust. That's fine. But why did you have to breach your agreement? That's not a requirement of antitrust law. And so you now look like a bad actor and you keep bringing up this notion that the Supreme Court says you don't have to comply with anti-competitive contractual conditions. That's true after the court has determined that they are anti-competitive contractual conditions. You don't get to just go and decide this for yourself, especially when we're talking about novel technical questions, integrated software offerings that from Apple's standpoint have been integrated since the day the iPhone was born. And so Apple didn't have a valid response because it really wasn't brought up again and Apple didn't need to talk about it. And now Epic says, well, the Supreme Court has always said we can stand our ground and not have to deal with anti-competitive contractual conditions. I think that's a loser for them. And I think it will continue to be a loser for them through the preliminary injunction stage. Second, Apple repeatedly invokes security and privacy as justifications for terminating Epic from its developer program, but Apple has not pointed to a single security issue relating to Epic's direct payment option, any of Epic's apps, or Unreal Engine. Absent any evidence of harm to any user, Apple argues that the widely used hotfix update mechanism itself was malicious, but as Epic showed in its opening papers, using hotfixes to serve updated content is common industry practice. Moreover, the hotfix update has come and gone, and Epic submitted several Fortnite builds expressly disclosing Epic's direct payment option, and Apple rejected them all. A couple of things here, and you can see how courts can get bogged down with the technical ease of all of this, right? Epic says hotfixes are normal, which they are. Apple says this hotfix wasn't normal, which is also true. And now the court has to go in and make some kind of determination about whether or not this was a normal state of affairs. Now, I think the court will ultimately look at this and say, yeah, you know, changing payment options isn't normally what we talk about when we talk about server side changes and hotfix updates. You're balancing things. You're potentially rotating content around your store. You're not changing the functionality of the app. And Apple has clearly expressed concern 
about changes in functionality throughout their guidelines, throughout their developer program agreement, throughout their website, now in this lawsuit. Apple has expressed that concern and you deliberately went around them. And that's always going to look bad to the court. Note also the failures with the next line from Epic, right? Moreover, that hotfix update has come and gone, but we've already submitted additional builds directly. We commented on the fact that we added this direct payment option and they still reject us. Now, from Apple's perspective, they can look at that and say, okay, well, you know, we had a store, you broke in the back door, you stole some stuff, you left, and now when you try to get back in the front door, we don't let you into our place of business. I think that makes a little bit more sense, right? If you're Apple, and maybe you think they're just retaliatory thugs and and they're just out there bullying people, and maybe you're right, but if you're Apple, you can have a justification. I think you can convince the court that you say, hey, look, I don't want to be in business with these folks. This is what they did the last time. And ultimately, that is our biggest area of sensitivity. If someone sneaks malware onto this phone and it is significant and it is damaging, one of our biggest brand differentiators, the reason we make more money than the Samsungs and the other Android-operated phones of the world on every piece of hardware sold is because we've sold this brand, we've sold that picture of an Apple, and we've sold the notion of security. And if that is defeated, that's going to be a problem. Apple's retaliation is not directed against the method by which Epic introduced competing payment processing functionality. Apple is objecting to the fact that Epic introduced competition offering consumers lower prices. Apple is not protecting consumers. It is protecting its monopoly and its bottom line. So they want to say, look, anything that they say on this is pretext because a hot fix is totally normal. Everything we did is totally normal. Ignore those middle of the night emails and us declaring open war on Apple. And again, as we talked about in that Apple filing, a lot of Tim Sweeney's rhetoric, his commentary, I'm going to use all my weapons available against you, have opened Epic up to Apple's defense here. That if Epic can do those things, if they just want to take Apple down, then Apple has to take defensive measures. And I think that is something that can hook a judge, that can hook a mind that is looking at this from a third-party perspective and say, yeah, Epic's CEO is acting like they will do anything to take Apple down. Apple has to take steps to defend itself, even if you don't like Apple. Now we get into a fun list. Finally, Apple's papers contain a number of half-truths and outright falsities intended to paint Epic as a bad actor. Epic cannot catalog them all here, but notes a few examples below. Now that's a fun little bit of legal sleight of hand, right? I would be willing to bet that they cataloged all the ones that they really thought were significant. You don't usually leave those on the cutting room floor if you think it paints Apple in a bad light. So they try to say, hey, maybe there's more in there, judge, go find it for yourself. But here are a few examples. Apple asserts that Epic eliminated IAP from Fortnite. I called that out as a big deal when Apple put that in their document. Epic took the IAP button off. This is false, they say. Epic's hotfix update offered IAP and Epic Direct Pay side by side. We all know that. That's true. IAP remained available in Fortnite until Apple blocked IAP upon termination of Epic's Team ID 84 account. IAP remained available. Sounds like it went away. Now, could Epic have set it up so that when there was some kind of call or check to see if their developer program was still in place, if it wasn't the IAP automatically went away? perhaps, and then they could blame Apple on it? Maybe. 
But if you look at this whole paragraph in its totality, you say, we removed IIP, that's false. It remained available until time X. That sure looks like it was removed. And this is the kind of thing that you say, all right, rhetorically, Epic, what are you doing? Why are you putting that in your first paragraph? Because that winds up looking like this list of falsities, some of which I think are good, is just weak sauce. Second paragraph. Apple asserts that the August 13th release has security risks. That is false. They say there aren't security risks. Epic would say there aren't security risks. Apple and Epic disagree as to what represents a security risk. Apple says, hey, we own the hardware. We own the iOS. We allow people in and out. We have this system. We get to check. That is our security feature. If we didn't get to check, that is a security risk. Epic says, hey, we're fine. But I think a lot of you that are in this space or just in general watching video games on the whole know that there are folks that have issues with the way Epic runs things, whether that's the Epic Game Store or otherwise. You saw Apple reference specifically that a Fortnite copy was a malware injection device when it was available on sideloading on Android. Apple says, hey, we're concerned about Epic. If they do things that we can't see, that's a security risk. And so that is false, but strong for that specific kind of assertion. An Apple declarant asserts that in 2018, Epic breached its agreement with Sony to launch cross-platform play without Sony's consent. That is false. Sony announced the availability of cross-platform play in September 2018, with Epic as one of the first participants in the new program. Now, this, I have to say, was interesting, right? It's possible that the declarant here, Apple's person, got the year wrong. Because if they did say that in 2018, Epic breached its agreement, that probably isn't accurate. If we go and look at some of the news headlines here, we've got in June of 2018, Sony is blocking Fortnite crossplay between PS4 and Nintendo Switch players. This was roughly at E3 time in 2018. Everybody was excited because Microsoft and the Switch could play together, but Sony wouldn't allow it. And then... In September of that same year, Sony enabled Fortnite crossplay for PS4 against Xbox and Switch. As this is described in The Verge, Sony backs down in a new policy change. They put a blog post up, extended Fortnite crossplay beta launches on PS4 starting today, September 26th, 2018. But what was the impetus behind a lot of this? Well, some of the consumer pressure came from this. Xbox gamers are now playing against PS4 players in Fortnite. Now, what year is that? That's not 2018. That's, in fact, a year before, 2017. And when pressed on it, what did Epic say? An Epic Games spokesperson confirmed to The Verge that this was an unintended mistake. We had a configuration issue, and it has now been corrected. This was at roughly the same time that Sony was getting pressure from other folks. Rocket League developer Psyonix previously said the game would support PS4 cross-platform play in less than an hour all over the world if Sony removed its blocks. This was a push to get Sony to allow these things, and a reasonable mind could suggest that a configuration issue that showed that Fortnite was already wired up to be playable with Microsoft and Xbox and Nintendo Switch crossplay was the kind of thing that highlighted Sony's policies in a way that made them look bad. So when you've got a declarant saying, hey, Epic deliberately breached its agreement with Sony, it's possible they got the year wrong. And if they did get the year wrong, then Epic's all right to say that is false. Clearly, PlayStation and Fortnite started that whole thing in 2018, but here we are. Mostly, the truth is that Epic did something, you could say it wasn't deliberate, to highlight that Sony wasn't allowing this and the software otherwise could support it, and Epic won the battle.
Paragraphs four and five, I think, are a bit stronger. In four, Apple claims Epic brought this case to revive supposedly waning interest in Fortnite, alleging a 70% decline in interest between October 2019 and July 2020. But Apple cherry-picked Google Trends data concerning Google search volumes, misleadingly stating from a one-week, misleadingly starting from a one-week spike that took place in October 2019 when Epic ran an in-game event that captured global attention. Fortnite users increased over that period. Now, I think that's fair. Google Trends data, search volumes, you absolutely can pick the top of a mountain and set up something that looks like a 70% decline. I haven't done this research myself, but I will note in the blue there that Fortnite users is open for debate as well. If you've ever played Fortnite, are you just a user forever then as far as Epic is concerned? I think for purposes of a statement like this, you might well be. And so even if Fortnite users increased, there really isn't a decrease unless you're keeping track of things like active users. And so this is one of those where I think it's fair. I think Epic calling Apple out for that kind of thing is totally fair. But maybe by trying to get that last little point in at the end, they went a little bit far. Paragraph five, Apple argues that Epic's own app marketplace charges users and developers a commission just like IAP, but the Epic Game Store offers developers the choice that Apple does not. They can use Epic's payment processor for in-app purchases, or they can use another payment processor and pay Epic nothing. I thought that was a strong bit of Epic's argumentation, and I was surprised that Apple didn't address it at all. Epic is right to call out that Apple makes this assertion in their document, and Epic has established in its documentation, Apple hasn't refuted it in any way, that they don't require Epic in-app purchasing in the Epic Game Store. Now, I also think that that was in part to set up this entire action. And one of the overall questions as this thing proceeds is how much is the Epic Game Store getting subsidized by Fortnite to allow it to do things that might otherwise be in a different universe sued against Epic for being anti-competitive? Are the Epic Game Store operations effectively predatory because they're subsidized by a different product in order to do these kinds of things and win Epic more money? I don't know the answer to that question, but certainly when you look at the way that every other store has run with in-app payment processing, IAP, the fact that Epic does it a different way and was also simultaneously planning for all of this does call into question the motivations of Epic and that unclean hands kind of notion. In paragraph six, they have a good one. Apple claims it placed Fortnite billboards in Times Square and LA Live at its expense to the benefit of Epic, but the billboards actually promoted the availability of Marshmello's concert playlist on Apple Music. I suspect it promoted both. Uh, so it's one of those things where Apple says, hey, we promoted Epic, and they did. Epic says, hey, they also promoted Apple, and they did. And as Epic describes it earlier in this paragraph, it's a half truth. You can see how when big giant corporations get contentious, it becomes very, very difficult for a judge or a court or a jury to really figure out what exactly happened and how. Some of the fun of law for someone like me, but really is difficult for folks that just want to understand what has occurred. Still, I like this page. I like the formatting. I like the, the attempt to cut off some of these things that Apple had said. I just don't think that they were all that successful on the ones that were really important. Now we talk about legal standards. The requested injunction here is prohibitory. Epic seeks an order prohibiting Apple from retaliating against Epic in any way on account of Epic's introduction of a competitive alternative to Apple's IAP. Understand the standard here. If the court is going to force you to do something, it is harder to get the court to do that than having the court order you to not do something. The difference between mandatory, mandating, and prohibition, prohibitory. 
Apple continues to say, this is a mandatory injunction. You are asking us to support Fortnite on our store. That is a mandate. Epic keeps saying, no, it's a prohibition because what we've said is you are prohibited from doing bad things to us. But Epic, I think at the end of the day, is going to lose that argument. They are clearly asking for Apple to have to have Fortnite on their store and to provide whatever support services that they were otherwise providing in a manner that Apple doesn't want to do. So in order to win a mandatory injunction, it's a higher bar than a prohibitory one. And that's why Epic keeps fighting this fight. Epic is highly likely to succeed on the merits. Now, it's worth noting here that in the temporary restraining order context, this basically sets the stage for the preliminary injunction. We've talked about this in the series before, but basically Epic lost the case on the temporary restraining order to mandate that Fortnite was put in the Apple App Store. And so you should consider as you're evaluating this injunction that Epic is behind on that count. Epic won the case to force Apple to not terminate its Unreal Engine licensees, the other contracts outside of Epic Games, the ones that just put games up on the App Store. They won that battle, and so they are in the lead on that fight, and they will get preliminary injunction preventing Apple from taking Unreal Engine off, from taking the subsidiaries off, if everything stayed the same. Now, I think Apple presented a pretty good case on Unreal, but ultimately that's what Epic is fighting over the most because they don't want to lose everything in the iOS environment. And if they only lose Fortnite, but keep Unreal, it's something of a half win, half loss. But note what the actual court said at the temporary restraining order level. Based on a review of the current limited record before the court, the court cannot conclude that Epic has met the high burden of demonstrating a likelihood of success on the merits, especially in the antitrust context. And as we talked about when we looked at the Apple document, this is a novel case. This kind of conception of a hardware creator putting together this software specifically for that hardware and controlling access to that software is a novelty, is something new that is not just going on with Apple versus Epic. It's also going on with other cases before this very judge, also concerning Apple, but that you can't presume that there will be a likelihood of success. And without that presumption, it becomes that much harder to get a preliminary injunction Because the injunction, again, is a special power of the court where you go and ask the court to effectively rule that you have won in certain important respects before you actually do so. So they say, yeah, we have a high likelihood of success. The court has already said, I don't see it. And none of these documents that have been batted back and forth between Apple and Epic really finalize that case, really make it for Epic and establish something that wasn't already established in their initial case that was brought. Apple argues that there are alternative means to distribute Fortnite and therefore that the market here must include at least distribution on other platforms on which Fortnite can be played. In other words, they're saying that Epic has defined the relevant market too narrowly to be only iOS app distribution. That is, in fact, the exact thing that I said at the very start of this, and I continue to believe, although a judge could certainly disagree with me, and that's one of the primary fights here. They say it's inconsistent with basic antitrust principles. Markets are commonly defined by applying the hypothetical monopoly test. They are often defined this way. It's not the only way to define one. And that test asks whether a monopolist in the proposed market could profitably impose a small but significant and non-transitory price increase on the monopolized product to a specified set of customers. So let's back down a step here. Epic has said that iOS app distribution is the market. So can a monopolist, can Apple that controls that market 
increase the price of access to that market in a small but significant way that doesn't go away. It's not transitory. And what will happen to that market? Will people leave it or will they be forced to stay? And so I think you should do this kind of thought experiment on your own as well. If Apple increased their take from 3070 to 3565, would people leave? And do they have places to go? Would people say, forget this, I am no longer selling anything on iPhone, or I'm going to figure out a way to tell people that you can't buy anything here. You can only come back over to our website. We'll try to do some tricks where we don't inform anybody that anything's being sold anywhere to get around the guidelines. And we're going to get around this whole in-app payment processing model. Is that something people would do? Would they flee? Would they go to Android? Would they say, I don't want to even do app development. I'm going to go to PlayStation 5, Nintendo Switch, or computer. Are those the kinds of things that would happen if you increase 30% to 35%? And if they are, if people would leave, if people would do other things, then you don't actually have monopolist market power over the market in question. Now, that also belies the question or not whether this is a Sherman antitrust market that's valid at all. Apple has come in and said, hey, we, we're one brand. It's one product. It's software integrated into the hardware, designed for that hardware. You can't take it apart like this. Epic says they can. But one of the questions they have now posed is, could Apple increase the price and keep everything that they otherwise had? If they wouldn't, and it doesn't have to be everybody flees. It just has to be some do. Then they don't actually have monopoly power to set the price. And that's an interesting question. Certainly the fact that they have maintained a 30% price level from day one, where they only had X amount of units sold till now suggests that they don't think they have that power, but maybe Epic's right. Maybe they do. The iOS app distribution market accordingly includes all the ways by which app developers generally, including but not limited to Epic, could, absent Apple's restrictions, distribute apps to the billion users of iOS devices. That is because distributing apps to users of other platforms is not an adequate substitute from the developer's perspective for accessing the 1 billion iOS users, which again strikes me as the wrong question. Apple certainly thinks it is. The question is, can you distribute Fortnite? They want to make it iOS apps because, of course, Apple has complete control of that market. But is it a relevant market? Are there other ways to get Fortnite? Can Epic make money moving Fortnite in a different direction? And can Apple have the contractual right to control access to their hardware? This is one of those areas where people have been fighting tooth and nail in the comments to these videos. Obviously, where I'm sitting, I look at it and say, Apple created this thing. Apple built that circus tent and they can control what access looks like. And if they are controlling it in a way that really does harm consumers or that really does harm even developers, then they won't have the developers they need in that ecosystem. They won't have the consumers that buy into that ecosystem to justify the prices that they want to charge. And that's how the market works. Apple is undoubtedly fighting the fight at the OS level. They're losing to Android across the world. And so you look at this question and says to me that Epic has a very difficult fight to make. Now they say the smartphone is unique. There's simply no other device that fits in your pocket and can be used anywhere and at any time. Again, we're sorry, Nintendo Switch. As the data show of the Fortnite users on iOS, 63% access Fortnite only on iOS. Those users and iOS users more generally are not accessible through distribution 
on other platforms. 63% only through iOS. Those users are not accessible through distribution on other platforms. I think at some point it has to be that we look at the actual numbers, right? 60% only access through iOS. What's that the percentage of your total Fortnite user base? And I think they've already said that iOS in general is not driving Fortnite sales or V-Buck sales in their economy. So they're fighting over a small piece of the pie and they're fighting over a small piece of the pie that only half are really limited when you cut off the iOS. So it becomes a trickier problem. And again, they're asking the court for special powers. The primary market consists of OSs for smartphones or tablets. Apple has market power in the primary market, the operating system, and competition for smartphone or tablet OSs cannot constrain Apple in the aftermarkets. Apple contends that Epic has no basis to argue that components of Apple's integrated offerings should be considered separately and that this is not an aftermarket case. But NewCal is the basis, and Apple cites no support that NewCal does not apply where a monopolist chooses to label its conduct in the downstream market as an integrated offering, which again is the reverse of the question, right? It's not the integrated offering statement that gets you out of this particular analysis. It's whether you are, in fact, one product, because an aftermarket depends on there being a second differentiated good. Now, I will say this, and I said it in my prior video. You can go check me on it. I think Apple absolutely fumbled the ball on this particular argument. I thought the aftermarket argument, the Eastman Kodak side of things, was by far Epic's strongest new parry uh, to them. And Apple didn't say anything. They are right to say essentially all Apple said in their document was, nah, no, it's not an aftermarket. And that, to me, was an absolute mistake. And it's a mistake that could wind up costing them, certainly on the Unreal Engine question, but potentially even on the Fortnite question. Because if the court likes that argument and says, no, I think they could be an aftermarket, uh uh-oh, Now I think there might be a likelihood of success on the merits and maybe, just maybe, I decide to let you force Apple to keep Fortnite on their store because now I think you might just win this thing and that could be a significant problem for Apple. Second part of this is Apple unlawfully maintains its monopoly. There are no alternative options to distribute consumer apps to iOS users despite what they say. Uh, Second, Apple says it need not provide unfettered and uncompensated use of its own technology, but that statement mischaracterizes Epic's argument. Microsoft is compensated for its investment in Windows without forcing all transactions on Windows PCs through a single store that it controls. Apple can be too. Now, this is something that Epic does throughout its documents, most specifically in this one, and that is it imposes its own business judgment on Apple. And business judgment is an important concept. There are good business decisions and there are bad business decisions. But in general, the courts of the United States aren't willing to have a robed official come in after the fact and say, that business decision was a bad one. That business decision was a good one. You should have done that in hindsight. And thus I so decree. Because as we recognize at the time, making these business decisions is difficult and businesses should be allowed to pursue the models that they want with these guardrails, right? With the Sherman Act, with antitrust, with anti-competition restrictions. And so the judge looks at something like this and says, okay, well, Apple could do that, but they chose not to. Also, when I look at that sentence, right? Microsoft sells Windows to others. One of the issues that we will see in the Microsoft case is that Microsoft didn't run the IBM compatible computers. They didn't make them. They sold an operating system into them. And that's one of the reasons why I think the case against Android and Google might be stronger because Google is clearly taking steps to mandate that Google Play appear with the Android store in a fashion similar to Microsoft and Internet Explorer. And so when we have this question, Apple could 
monetize its investment in the iOS, it is monetizing that investment through asking for App Store dollars because it controls the entire hardware and iOS ecosystem in a fashion that Microsoft and Windows simply never did. However, Epic says Apple's investment in iOS does not give it unfettered rights to maintain a monopoly in related downstream markets, and Apple cites no case law suggesting otherwise. Of course, it doesn't. What Apple's main contention is, is that this isn't a downstream market. IAP is the same as app distribution, is the same as iOS, which is really the same as iPhone, and that this is all one thing that we are selling, and you've tried to break it up into pieces to make your case, but we at Apple don't think that that is, in fact, what is happening. Apple also tries to justify its total control of all iOS consumer app distribution by pointing to the need for security. This is a pretext. There are many methods to secure a platform aside from controlling all consumer app distribution. Again, that might well be true. Apple has chosen this way. Apple has chosen this way in lieu of other ways. Epic doesn't, in general, get to come in and say Apple could have done it a different way and we would have liked it that way. And in terms of pretext... You don't have to take a big, long, deep dive onto the internet to see that all of the security kind of folks say that while maybe draconian and while a lot of people might not like it, Apple's methodology here does in fact protect people. I've pulled up a random Norton Web article. It says, here's a look at the Apple iOS. More stringent controls. This is talking about security. It's more difficult for developers to get apps into the App Store. Absolutely. That's because the review process is more stringent. Because of this, it's less likely for a malicious app to sneak into Apple's store. That's certainly Apple's justification. You don't have to like Norton. Please feel free. Go look at research on this. There are a number of articles that talk about this. Less flexibility, Norton says. Apple doesn't allow the owners of its devices to modify its iOS operating system or custom ROMs to be loaded on their devices. That makes the system more secure since Apple controls the complete experience. There's a third party. Right? And there are plenty of third parties that say this. You don't have to agree with this. You don't have to agree with Apple. You don't have to agree with the approach that they have taken. You just have to recognize that it doesn't automatically become pretextual because you don't like it. There are reasons behind what Apple is doing. There are business justifications for what Apple has done in terms of a walled garden and the unique product offering they want to sell. And just because it isn't a product that you or Tim Sweeney wants to buy doesn't make it illegal. Apple is also aware that security could be a factor on which different app stores could compete. If Apple's app store could in fact offer better security than all other stores, Apple could use this security advantage to prevail in a competitive market at the app store level. But again, Apple's thinking about this as an integrated offering. The heart of this case, remember, if you take nothing else away from this entire video series, the heart of this case is, are Walled Gardens illegal? Where you fall on that decision is going to determine really how you feel about all of this. The virtual legality hoag law stance is that walled gardens present a unique product offering that consumers should have the right to choose if they so desire. And if you give Epic the win here, those walled gardens cannot exist. And I feel from a consumer perspective that that ultimately lowers the freedom of consumers, lowers what they might otherwise want to purchase, and ultimately harms more people, then it might help. And admittedly, it might help those of you that want to get access to an iPhone and that 1.5 billion users and sell your own apps. For assessing likelihood of success on the merits, Apple's retaliation against Unreal Engine is further evidence of the absolute power Apple wields on iOS 
and the lengths to which Apple will go to maintain its monopolies. And they also throw in this whole uh, check-in thing. In the same vein, to maximize its retaliatory threats to Epic, Apple recently threatened to shut down sign-in with Apple following its termination of the 84 account, potentially leaving hundreds of thousands of Epic users locked out of their accounts. And again, you can see a lot of this depends on what perspective you have, right? It's evil retaliation if you're Epic. From Apple's side, well, it's the contract rights that we have. Once we cut you off from the developer program, sign-in shouldn't be supported. And all of this is normal. Now, You can take your own cynicism or own thoughts and apply it to whichever party that you like, but you can see that one of the problems that Epic has here when they're talking to the judge who they're asking for special powers from is that it assumes their premise. It assumes a likelihood of success on the merits. And if the judge doesn't get there, really all of this document falls apart. Apple does not dispute that it contractually conditions developers' ability to distribute iOS apps on their agreement to use solely Apple's own IAP to process all in-app payments for digital content and that it thereby forecloses all competition for the processing of such payments. That is unlawful per se and rule of reason tying and monopoly maintenance. Now, first thing we'll talk about is unlawful per se. We're going to get to the actual reference to Microsoft a little later in the document, but I think now is a good time to talk about it. A lot of you have brought it up in this space. It's an older case. Microsoft was sued for including Internet Explorer for free in their Windows operating system and effectively mandating that nobody remove it. And this is how the Federal Trade Commission describes what happens. I think this is also an interesting kind of just thought experiment to see exactly what you can trust and what you can't trust, even from a government website like this one. Microsoft was found to have a monopoly over operating system software for IBM-compatible personal computers. Microsoft was able to use its dominant position in the operating systems market to exclude other software developers and prevent computer makers from installing non-Microsoft browser software to run with Microsoft's operating system software. Specifically, Microsoft illegally maintained its operating systems monopoly by including Internet Explorer, the Microsoft Internet browser, with every copy of its Windows operating system software sold to computer makers and making it technically difficult not to use its browser or to use a non-Microsoft browser. The court found that although Microsoft did not tie up all ways of competing, its actions did prevent rivals from using the lowest cost means of taking market share away from Microsoft. To settle the case, that's important, we'll get back to that, Microsoft agreed to end certain conduct that was preventing the development of competing browser software. Primarily, they agreed not to make it so difficult to get rid of Internet Explorer. Internet Explorer didn't actually have to change at all. And you see that summary But if we look at different summaries, you get a little bit more flavor here. Now, we're going to pull up a Wikipedia article. I will give you the same comments that I gave earlier in the week on Wikipedia articles with anything touching politics at all. Take it all with a grain of salt. Go to the source material yourself. But this does give a bit of flavor for what happened. Judge Thomas Penfield Jackson Jackson issued his findings of fact on November 5th, 1999, which stated that Microsoft's dominance of the x86-based personal computer operating systems market constituted a monopoly and that Microsoft had taken actions to crush threats to that monopoly. On June 7th, 2000, the court ordered a breakup of Microsoft as its remedy. Now, as you're probably aware, Microsoft did not break up on June 7th, 2000 or any time thereafter. Why was that? That was because on appeal, the DC Circuit Court overturned Judge Jackson's rulings against Microsoft. This was partly because the appellate court had adopted a drastically altered scope of liability under which the remedies could be taken. We will look at that. And also partly due to the embargoed interviews Judge Jackson had given to the news media while he was still hearing the case. 
the appeals court did not overturn the findings of fact. Although the D.C. Circuit found that it was possible to examine high-tech industries with traditional antitrust an analysis, the court announced a new and permissive liability rule that repudiated the Supreme Court's dominant rule of per se illegality for tie-ins due to the court's concern for the dynamic effects that a per se rule would have on innovation. The DOJ announced on September 6, 2001, that it was no longer seeking to break up Microsoft after basically losing the bulk of this appeals case. And then in November of that year, just a couple months after, the proposed settlement required Microsoft to share its application programming interfaces, APIs, with third-party companies and appoint a panel of three people who would have full access to Microsoft's systems, records, and source code for five years in order to ensure compliance. However, the DOJ did not require Microsoft to change any of its code, nor prevent Microsoft from tying other software with Windows in the future. On June 30th, 2004, the U.S. Appeals Court unanimously approved the settlement with the Justice Department, rejecting objections that the sanctions were inadequate. So when you bring up the Microsoft case, it's important to remember a lot of the context here. One of the main pieces of which is that effectively the DOJ stopped. The Court of Appeals flipped around on this, and they flipped around on it in such a strong way that the Department of Justice and Microsoft decided on a settlement, and the ultimate settlement was that Microsoft would be a little less mean about trying to force people to have Internet Explorer on their Windows operating system, but didn't require any change to code, didn't require them to not tie things to Windows in the future, and ultimately, everybody walked away. So when we talk about per se, one of the important things to note is that per se tying is a very difficult thing to use in the realm of software entirely, really, because of this line of cases. Or as they say in this Microsoft, we hold that the rule of reason rather than per se analysis should govern the legality of tying arrangements involving platform software products. There being no close parallel in prior antitrust cases, simplistic application of per se tying rules carries a serious risk of harm. Effectively, what that says in legalese is that we shouldn't look at software integration as something that is absolutely every time illegal that things that are integrated in software are tying in a real definitional way, but that the court has to evaluate it every time because software is new and different and we don't want to hurt the dynamism of the software industry. They also point out that tying is a difficult thing in general. Our purpose here, as they say in this big section that I'm not going to read to you, is to highlight the poor fit between separate products testing and the facts of the case where software integration was in play. As they say, not all ties are bad. Bundling is something that can be good for consumers. Giving away a copy of Internet Explorer for free in general is not something we're going to look down upon from a consumer satisfaction level. It can, however, lower competition on a broader level. And so we have to write a whole lot about it. And as you see, as we continue here, we don't get anything that is terribly helpful to the case at hand. Epic versus Apple, because ultimately the Microsoft court said, well, you can't decide anything on a per se basis. So every court is going to have to look at all of this in a detailed way. The failure of the separate products test to screen out certain cases of productive integration is particularly troubling in platform software markets, such as that in which the defendant competes and Apple. Not only is integration common in such markets, but it is also common among firms without market power, right? What market power does GOG have? What market power does various tiny 
software operating system cell phones have. And they still will do something a lot along the lines of this with in-app purchases and everything else. This is the way the market has built itself. And so the courts should be very reticent about actually finding anything as per se illegal. And they should apply the rule of reason, the actual market test to everything that they're looking at to establish antitrust violations. Next, we get Apple Ties app distribution to in-app payment processing. Epic has shown the first element of tying two separate products. Raw assertion, clearly Epic and Apple just don't agree on this, whether in-app payment processing is separate from app distribution and the iOS and the iPhone in general. This is something that the court is going to have to decide. On September 11th, 2020, Apple amended its app store review guidelines to liberate, good word, from its IAP requirement, apps only sold directly by developers to organizations or groups for their employees or students, right? Apple itself provides these examples about how IAP can be separated. As I said earlier, when we were looking at this document, that's not a bad claim. If you can separate it at all, how is it an integrated offering? I, however, don't think it fully establishes that it's not integrated just because Apple can, in fact, make exceptions. Then you get their 2000 developer concept. They say separate demand exists. And again, I think that's unlikely to win the day because Apple can simply say, yes, there's separate demand to not pay us any money and to get access to our users without paying us any money. And that demand will always exist, but it doesn't prove your point. It's not consumer demand. You can't actually show that what we're doing hurts consumers. And what we're talking about is demand for different payment processing. Here, Epic has shown that Apple ties the two separate products. Apple's argument is that there is no conditioning here because developers are free to adopt other business models that do not include in-app digital purchases. That's misguided. Under Apple's rules, the only way to distribute consumer apps on iOS is through the App Store. The only way to sell in-app digital content on iOS is through IAP, subject to Apple's arbitrary, unilaterally determined exceptions. That is conditioning, and that is a tie. Indeed, that is anti-competitive harm, as Apple's former CEO himself recognized, buy, rent, subscribe from iOS without paying us, which we acknowledge is prohibitive for many things. Now, of course, it is in fact prohibitive because any amount of money is prohibitive to someone. And I think people would admit that paying 12% to Epic might be prohibitive for access to the Epic Game Store for a very specific small developer of video games that might otherwise like to be there. So the fact that it's 30%, the fact that there are other things that you have to pay for, for Apple doesn't win this case, I think, in the way that Epic does. And then you also see in footnote four here, they try to establish that the Microsoft passage that we just read doesn't end their case before it begins. Microsoft did not undo the line of cases that apply the per se standard to contractual ties. That might well be true. Contracts and contractual ties, you still have a per se standard. Microsoft, however, does appear to be entirely on point when we are talking about integrated applications, integrated functionality to an operating system provider. And they say, whoa, per se is out. We need to use the rule of reason. And I don't think that Epic makes a strong counter argument to that reading of the case. However, they do say under the rule of reason, Apple's conduct still has anti-competitive effects. Epic explained how Apple forecloses competition in the iOS in-app payment processing market. The facts are simple. Epic offered a competing product with lower prices and Apple ejected Epic from the market. Apple now concedes that it has taken similar steps against over 2,000 other developers seeking to introduce competition into the iOS ecosystem and foreclosure on the scale is clearly anti-competitive. It's anti-competitive of that specific market. Again, they still have to establish that that's a relevant Sherman antitrust market and that Apple is otherwise using its power. 
right? So they say that Apple's contracts, having the right to kick off these people is abuse of that power. And certainly you can have reasonable minds that differ on that score, but the court is, I think, more likely to look at this and say, all right, at least as of right now, before we adjudicate this case at this preliminary injunction level, what you are saying is that a provider of hardware that also provides the software that runs that hardware can't control access in any reasonable way. That everybody has to be allowed on there, all 2,000 other developers and Epic Games, and it's a free-for-all. And then what effect does that have on the consumer market? Does Apple continue to invest in the iPhone ecosystem? Does the next guy bother to make a phone ecosystem? Because now they can't control access to that even if they had a brilliant idea and a brilliant business model. And I think you always have to take those kinds of things into account. And if you don't know the answer to those questions, and nobody does at this stage of a proceeding like this, you have to be very cautious about issuing a preliminary injunction that is going to force Apple to effectively allow you to breach the contract terms that they have set out for you. They also say that Apple's pro-competitive justifications are pretextual. Security is clearly not the reason for these restrictions. Apple already allows alternative payment mechanisms for iOS apps that provide real goods or services. Apple does not mandate IAP for digital content purchased on Mac computers. Now, I do think that this is a relatively good argument, as we've talked about in the past. I do think Apple can counter this argument to some extent by saying, well, we don't have to have the same resources devoted to evaluating things like Uber services or streaming person-to-person educational experiences that we do with code that actually runs on the phone. And certainly you have proven Epic that we have to look at that even more closely, especially with you, because you're hiding things all over the place in the code. And so since we have to employ those people to evaluate those things, then yes, in-app payment processing, whatever you want to call it, is something that we still need to take our 30% out of because it funds everything that we do to make 1.5 billion people available to purchase your application. And again, the judge might disagree with that. Epic is putting its best foot forward. Apple has put its best foot forward already and may yet respond to this particular document. But I think that is, at the end of the day, the main problem with Epic's argument. In terms of Mac computers, they're distinct, right? The fact that Apple wants to keep the iPhone more secure than a Macintosh doesn't mean that that's wrong. It doesn't mean that they can't make that decision. They can make any number of decisions. You've seen the articles that have been quoted from Steve Jobs and Tim Cook that say, look, a phone is not a computer. You have to take your business calls. It has to be more accessible. It has to be less prone to crashing. And if you can make any of those business justifications, whether or not the court agrees or Tim Sweeney does, if they are at all reasonable, you have to give them credence, especially at this early stage of a court dispute. Apple is entitled to payment for services that it provides, but it is not entitled to force services onto users and developers when Apple's services are not wanted. This again comes down to whether or not the proper definition of the IAP market is simply that Apple processes payments or whether it is that Apple has devoted all this investment, time and energy, resources and personnel to making sure that those 1.5 billion people still want to have the next iPhone are still available to buy things from you. Apple says this whole shebang is what you are paying for. That's why the amounts are justified. The service isn't we're moving money from one account to yours. The service is the iPhone. Apple undertakes these investments, the ones that they have said they have done, tools, education, support services, to make the iOS platform more appealing to app developers and users alike. Indeed, that sentence is true. As we've said in this space, Apple didn't do these kinds of things out of the goodness of its heart. 
But court, doesn't that wind up looking like Apple is trying to be competitive? That Apple went from zero to 60 within a decade because they have undertaken these investments, because consumers like what they have offered. And now Epic seeks to break that up, even though consumers have basically expressed their preference already. Apple complains that if the court were to enjoin one piece of the existent model, Apple would have to rework the entire system and switch to one of the many other potential models that it acknowledges are possible. That is exactly the point. Apple should have to change the unlawful portions of its business model. Indeed, if they're unlawful, they should. But you have to be darn sure that if you're the court, you're going to issue a preliminary injunction on this point. And I think Apple makes a good uh, good point that says, hey, if you don't know, if there is a doubt in your mind, if they aren't likely to succeed on the merits and this is going to hurt our business and all the consumers that like our iPhone, then you have to think about that very carefully, court. Apple argues that the spectacular growth of iOS is proof of the pro-competitive benefits of its conduct. Indeed, it went from 0% market share to a significant portion. As Epic says, however, but Apple has done nothing to show that growth is attributable to the conduct at issue. That is, that this growth is the result of Apple's requirement that all consumer app distribution occur through the App Store and that all in-app payment processing for digital content occur through IAP. I think that's a flat-out loser. I think Apple, it doesn't take any rocket scientist to look at what Apple is selling, but that people respond to surveys about the user experience, respond to surveys about the brand value, and one of the main ways in which that brand value is controlled is by what the Nortons of the world call less flexibility. And it's that less flexibility that a lot of tinkerers and people that are in tech hate. They don't like a walled garden. They can't do what they want with their device, and they think it's a terrible product. But others don't. And the court shouldn't be in the business of deciding who's right on that kind of question if consumers have expressed a preference for that. Apple 100% has a business justification for doing what it has done. That has proven successful over the course of a decade. And those of you that are going to come into the comments and call me an Apple shill should know that I'm not a big fan of walled gardens in general. I think a lot could be gained from opening up a lot of these systems. But in the same breath... I think that people should be allowed to choose that, that Apple should be allowed to sell it and then let the chips fall where they may. Sorry, Epic, that you're not going to have access to 1.5 billion users that decided they liked Apple as their gatekeeper more than they like you. Finally, Apple argues that the fact that other app stores for computing platforms also charge similar commissions at a similar rate is strong evidence that Apple's conduct is pro-competitive. I'd actually argue it's strong evidence that it's neutral, It's not anti-competitive. It's market standard, right? But Epic says not so. Google, the other duopolist for smartphone or tablet OSs, is able to adopt the same anti-competitive policies Apple has adopted because it is a monopolist in the distribution of Android apps. Now, that's a tough one. Every time Epic brings up Google to try to defend its stance against Apple winds up ringing hollow, at least to me. If you've got a different opinion, please do leave it in the comments to this video. But as I look at this, you say Google, the other duopolist, winds up at the same percentage because they're also a monopolist of access to Android apps. Except Android's an open system. Things can be sideloaded. Your case against them in terms of monopolist power over Android apps is much worse than your case against them as a monopolist of their Android operating system and how they're using it to distribute Android apps. And so you wind up with this weird argument 
where Apple says 30% is standard, 30% is everywhere, 30% is Steam, 30% is Android, 30% is Switch, is PlayStation, is Xbox, is Best Buy, is whatever. And so we're not anti-competitive because it's the same number for everybody. We haven't changed it. You know, one of the reasons you usually see a case like this is when Apple actually goes out there and makes it 35% or makes it 40%. Then Epic sues and says they are using their market power, their 1.5 billion people to harm us. They didn't do that. They kept the same percentages they had on day one. And understand the implications of Epic's case here are that Apple was a monopolist the first day they sold their first iPhone because their claim is that Apple is a monopoly provider of access to iOS or more specifically to iOS app distribution. That didn't change between day one and now. Apple is as much a monopolist of that access as they were on day one. And more importantly, every hardware provider that runs their own proprietary operating system on any device has that same problem. So this is one of those areas where when you hear me say this is a weak case, I look at these kinds of things and say, courts are generally unwilling, certainly at a preliminary stage, to upturn the, no pun intended, apple cart, to make a sea change in multiple industries across the entire economy based on something like this, based only on the information presented in three or four or five very tilted, very biased documents. Biased, not through any fault of their own. You're supposed to be biased, zealous advocacy from the lawyers. And so the court looks at this and says, okay, well, Google is another duopolis that arrives at the same percentage as everybody else. And I'm supposed to take that as exertion of monopoly power. Epic then says, hey, there's a wide diversity of practices among app stores on the open platforms of Windows, demonstrating that competition benefits the consumer. Okay, but there's a lot of 30% out there too. And if those 30% exist, That does suggest that if you had monopoly power and you arrived at a number that was also shared with other stores in a quote-unquote open platform like Windows, you're going to have some difficulty proving to me that you're illegally using monopoly power to get at that same number. And I think a lot of people intuitively understand that. As Epic concludes, thus little can be inferred from adoption of Apple's practices in other contexts. And I think that ultimately is a loser of an argument. Epic will suffer irreparable harm absent an injunction. Apple does not dispute that removal of Fortnite from the App Store will cause many Epic customers to give up on Fortnite and will undermine Epic's ability to create the Fortnite metaverse. I just love that line in a federal lawsuit document. The Fortnite metaverse. Apple does not dispute that cutting off Epic's access to developer tools will cause millions of developers who rely on Unreal Engine to question the viability of the engine. Now, truth be told, I think that horse is out of the barn. Right? If you're following this and you've got Unreal Engine in any kind of process on iOS or otherwise, you look at this and say, well, if, the, if my fate, if my development, if my product is now in the hands of a rogue judge somewhere in California, well, then a reasonable business person is going to question the viability of that engine. And if you really break it down and say Tim Sweeney and Epic is willing to put that at risk for me, who has invested his resources in backing up the Unreal Engine horse, then I got to think about my choices. And that happens regardless, really, of what the judge decides here, because the judge is always just going to be a judge. And this won't be certain until a court of appeals and potentially a Supreme Court decision on this kind of question, if it doesn't get settled or withdrawn or dismissed first. And so, yeah, cutting off access would cause them to question the viability of the engine, but so does Epic's actions in the first instance. And you really can't put those on Apple for what Epic 
has already decided to do. Instead, Apple's argument is simply that since Epic changed its Fortnite app, Apple should be able to do anything in retaliation. Now, that's too far. That's clearly too far. And one of the things that comes up in these documents, and I think you've seen in various pieces of these documents on both sides, Apple and Epic, is that it's always a bad idea to reach too far. You don't help your argument by hyperbolizing. You don't help your argument by playing tricks. Any good judge, we have no reason to believe this isn't a good judge, will look at these kinds of things and say, nah. And now that you're reaching, I put that in the back of my head and I say, okay, you're inclined to reach on these things. Apple never said they should be able to do anything in retaliation. They said that they should be able to enforce their contract. And that might be bad enough. And you might win an injunction against that, but play it straight, Epic. And I could say that about a lot of their documents. And certainly I said it about Apple's document last week, but play it straight. A lot of this grandstanding doesn't do anybody good, least of all, your client. Epic's public statements were made to expose to the public Apple's anti-competitive conduct, which Apple takes pains to conceal. Now, considering the anti-competitive conduct at issue here is 30% versus 70% for developers, the existence of in-app payment processing, the existence of the fact that Apple takes a cut off that in-app payment processing, I don't know whether they take any pains to conceal it. That's available on their website. You can go look at it. It's available all over the place in terms of this series and in virtual legality even before this series started. I don't know that they take pains of any kind to conceal it. In any event, users and developers are blaming Epic for the effects of this fight with incalculable consequences to Epic's goodwill, reputation, and competitive standing. And I think, to be honest with you, I think a lot of people are blaming Epic for the effects of this fight because Epic could have this fight without having Fortnite direct payment, could have this fight without causing all this harm to its developers, all this harm to its Fortnite users. Everybody can see that. Epic is trying to make a point about not capitulating uh, or, or righteously fighting the good fight as it sees it. Uh, but ultimately, they don't have to do that to even realize their own legal rights. And everybody that's a third party to Epic, I think, can really see through that. And so if they're sending emails to Tim Sweeney, if they're sending emails to Epic, I think the court would look at this kind of question and say, yeah, you shot yourself in the foot and now you're asking for the court to save you. But ultimately, the people that are angry at you might just be justifiably so. They finish off this kind of sequence by saying, if Epic is correct and Apple is maintaining monopoly with anti-competitive contract restrictions, the Supreme Court instructs that what Apple characterizes as self-inflicted should be understood as protective of competition. But note what I have highlighted here. And in a rare bit of video, it's just one little highlight in the middle of this screen. If Epic is correct, then yeah, everything they've said in all of their documents is something that's probably justifiable. But Epic doesn't get to make that determination for itself. Epic might be correct at the end of all this. But if they are correct at the end of all this, then many things happen. They potentially get damages. They potentially get to open up their own app store. They potentially get to break Apple's contract. Apple's contract is broken with maybe all of its developers. All of these things go forward. If they're not correct, then none of that happens. So... When the court says we're not so sure about the likelihood of the merits, when Apple says this is a novel case, you can't assume that they will win, Epic's got a problem. And so when they say the Supreme Court instructs us that we don't have to listen to those contracts, they do at the end of the day. When they hold that something is anti-competitive, yes, they don't enforce that contract, but the parties in general don't get to just ignore the consequences of their actions in the moment because a court might someday decide that something is anti-competitive. 
Apple's attempt to distinguish this line of binding precedents on the basis that they did not involve injunctive relief finds no support in the cases themselves and is flatly contradicted by courts of appeals precedent cited in Epic's opening brief, including Aquier versus Canada Dry Bottling Company. The Aquier court recognized that if the plaintiffs there chose to abide by the terms of the defendant's illegal promotional program, the defendant would not have withheld product from them. The Aquier court outright rejected the defendant's argument that the harm to the plaintiffs caused by their choice to reject the illegal provisions was self-inflicted. Well, let's go to Aquier, right? I told you a couple of videos ago that we wouldn't necessarily dive into all these cases, but Epic has brought up a number of them, and so we're going to look at a few. Here, one of the things that Apple said is that it's not so cut and dry as what Epic has said, and I find Apple to be a little bit more persuasive on this front for the following reasons. In this case, they say Canada Dry asserts that the district court completely overlooked that the distributors could have avoided Canada Dry's enforcement mechanism either by opting out of the promotional program altogether or by following the promotional program's procedures. Canada Dry asserts that injunctive relief was appropriate only upon a showing by plaintiffs, which Canada Dry argues they failed to make, that the distributors would be irreparably harmed either by foregoing the promotional program or by participating in it according to its terms. So Canada Dry says, hey, if they were going to be harmed by actually going forward with this program with its terms or skipping out on it, then maybe you could have an injunction against us, but you shouldn't otherwise, court. And the court says, no, we are still going to enforce an injunction. Epic is using that as their basis, but as Apple rightly points out, there's a lot more going on here. The record, however, is not entirely bereft of evidence, as Canada Dry insists, to support the district court's concern that product would be withheld improperly. There is some evidence permitting the inference that Canada Dry managers may in fact have withheld product from distributors who failed to turn in customer signed preprinted invoices, who failed to do what would have been required outside of the program at issue as potentially antitrust violative even when the invoices did not include claims for promotional discounts. Moreover, there is some evidence that Canada Dry impounded the truck of at least one distributor who failed to have all of his invoices signed by retailers, even though many of the invoices did not involve promotional discounts. And finally, there are the magistrate judge's findings of credible evidence that Canada Dry has consistently utilized devices, including price surveillance to force adherence to its suggested retail prices and, importantly, of a likelihood of success by plaintiffs on their price-fixing claim. So in our present case, we are looking at a circumstance in which the court so far has not found a likelihood of success for Epic, and Epic is bringing up cases in which, in this particular case, the defendant did other bad things where it was suggested that they were going to punish these folks even if they were otherwise in compliance, if they skipped out on the program that was potentially a violation of antitrust law, et cetera, et cetera. And... When you get down to it, at this level, it's very difficult for the court to actually overturn the underlying court anyway. Under the abuse of discretion standard utilized in reviewing a preliminary injunction, we cannot say the district court erred. This limited review is necessitated because the grant or denial of a preliminary injunction is almost always based on an abbreviated set of facts, requiring a delicate balancing of the probabilities of ultimate success at final hearing, with the consequences of immediate irreparable injury, which could possibly flow from the denial of that preliminary relief. Weighing these considerations is the responsibility of the district judge. Only a clear abuse of his discretion will justify appellate reversal. Said another way, it is always very unlikely for an injunction that has issued to be overturned at the next higher court because the ultimate kind of balance of how this is looked at is that the overall court will say, well, if there wasn't a clear indication 
of some abuse of their discretion, we are going to allow it. So they look at all this and say, well, the facts say Canada Dry might have been punishing other people, might not have had any of this kind of combination with the promotional program. And so we can understand how the court could have arrived at that decision. But it doesn't really impact Epic versus Apple, because in this particular instance, Apple is trying to say we're taking Fortnite off because of that breach. We're not otherwise hurting others that are not involved in that breach. And so Aquair Canada Dry may be not the best example. However, I think Epic brings up a good point that I've talked about in my earlier documents. Epic was faced with a similar choice. If it chose with a simple keystroke to capitulate and provide Apple with a compliant version of Fortnite, Apple would return Fortnite to the App Store and allow Epic to keep its developer program accounts. Now, their argument is actually living in the footnote here where they comment on the fact that with a simple keystroke, as Apple has said, is maybe not so much the case. Apple argues that Epic cannot demonstrate irreparable harm because it can solve its own problems with a simple keystroke. This is false, or at least inconsistent with Apple's statements to Epic. Apple has decreed that it will deny Epic's reapplication to the Apple developer program for at least a year. And in fact, we talked about that last week. One of the things that pops up here is maybe Apple wins the Fortnite part. Maybe Apple wins all of it but has to tell the court that if Epic changes its stripes and takes out that direct pay option, they can't keep them off for a year. They have to let everybody on while Epic is compliant. That is a strong possibility of what could happen here if the court ultimately winds up looking at this and saying, yeah, I don't think that we can just give Epic the injunction that they are looking for. I think they would still have to tell Apple, if Epic changes, you can't just keep them off because part of your argument was that Epic could change this with a single keystroke. That has to be true in order for your arguments to make any sense. If it refused, Apple would punish Epic by terminating its accounts, cutting off its access to tools and more. Like the Aquair court, this court should not discount irreparable harm based on the fact that Epic's choice was to take a stand and not abide by Apple's anti-competitive policies. Again, a lot of that decision really relates to the bad acts of the defendant. And the court looking at it and saying, hmm, no, we can't change that. We can't change our injunction decision at the lower court level because the facts already indicated that the defendant had done bad things to people that weren't necessarily doing anything that should have resulted in their termination. Absent relief, the harm to Epic will be significant. By contrast, the parade of horribles Apple claims will occur if the injunction is granted is not credible. Apple already allows many developers to offer direct payment as an alternative to IAP. Apple did not reject App Epic's direct payment to protect iOS users. Apple rejected it because it posed a competitive threat. Epic's refusal to abide by Apple's anti-competitive IAP tie does not provide any support that Fortnite, Unreal Engine, or any other Epic app for that matter would become a source of malware. Apple's entire security threat argument is destroyed by its own practices that allow numerous other developers to offer direct payment. Now, again, Apple targets this argument actually on the methodology of what Epic did. And I think it's a good argument that Epic went around their app review process in a way that fundamentally breached their trust. And so Apple reacts to that. It's one of those areas where you look at this and say, if Epic were a better plaintiff, Hogue and virtual legality and the rest of you folks might not think it was such a bad case that they brought. But unfortunately, they are a bad plaintiff. They do have emails where Tim Sweeney says, I'm going to array all my tools against you and whatnot. And so when you look at this particular set of circumstances, Apple can, I think, pretty easily argue Epic's just not trustworthy. Apple's argument is that there is a possibility of Epic's payment service could hypothetically create a future security issue. The prospect that Epic's alternative payment system may compromise users' privacy or data security. 
Apple has used the time that Epic has been away to dissect Epic's direct payment to look for security threats. Apple's failure to offer any evidence of such a threat is conclusive. Finally, on this page, I wanted to point out that here with number six, one of the things that they said is that along with that case, Aquair, they had a number of other cases that they wanted to bring up to suggest on all of these points that Epic should be allowed to get an injunction because of this prior case law. They brought up a case called Milson Co. versus Southland Corp., which I wanted to look at. And if you go and you look at this case, some of the things that pop out are that this doesn't apply to Epic versus Apple either. Many courts have held that defendants who are or may be guilty of anti-competitive practices should not be permitted to terminate franchises, leases, or sales contracts when such terminations would effectuate those practices, franchisees. The most common situation is a suit by an automobile dealer, a judgment for damages acquired years after his franchise has been taken away and his business obliterated is a small consolation to one who has had a franchise since 1933. They're talking specifically about franchises and franchisors, and they say, the open pantry store owners in this particular case have presented an appropriate case for preliminary injunction. Again, Epic is using this to justify their injunction request, so that makes sense. They have fulfilled the requirements stated recently in American Family Life Assurance versus Aetna Life Insurance Co., where plaintiffs have no adequate remedy at law because they will lose their stores and may not be able to finance the trial. The balance of hardships tilt towards plaintiffs because defendants risk little in allowing plaintiffs to continue operating their stores. And three, plaintiffs have at least a reasonable likelihood of success on the merits. Again, that reasonable likelihood of success of the merits, high likelihood of success of the merits, whatever the likelihood of success, if you can't clear any of those thresholds, this becomes a problem for Epic. Further, this particular line of cases actually is overturning the lower court here, just as we said was unlikely, but still possible at the, at the upper court level. And this says... Despite the persuasive factual situation and the legal precedents we just outlined, the district judge denied the preliminary injunction because he deemed controlling a line of cases exemplified by Kelly versus Kosuga from 1959. He found that defendants desired to terminate the franchises because plaintiffs' franchise fees and rents were in arrears and that the franchisor had no other motive, right? This is a breach of contract. You can go forward and you can look at it and you can say, well, if they breach their contract, I can terminate them. Apple has also said, we can terminate anybody on 30 days notice. This trial judge said, from the Kelly cases, charges of antitrust violations cannot be a defense to a breach of contract suit. The court here describes that judgment as fundamentally correct, but finds that this particular set of facts doesn't match with that. So if we go and we look at Kelly now, because we're having fun deep diving into cases as we do here in the legal practice, we see that this particular case stands a little bit closer to what we might think of as Epic versus Apple. As a defense to an action based on contract, the plea of illegality based on violation of the Sherman Act has not met with much favor in this court. The court observed that the Sherman Act's express remedies could not be added to judicially by including the avoidance of private contracts as a sanction. While the effect of illegality under a federal statute is a matter of federal law, the federal courts should not be quick to create a policy of non-enforcement of contracts beyond that which is clearly the requirement of the Sherman Act. So if you go and you do this deep dive into these cases, you find that the overall baseline rule, which we've talked about in this space, is that the court should be willing to enforce contracts to the extent that they don't touch upon the actual antitrust issue, right? And here, what has been done is that Apple has 
terminated Epic, both under a termination for convenience kind of concept and also for a breach concept, not just because they added direct payment, which might touch upon the antitrust issue, but also because they avoided app review, which doesn't. And so Apple looks at this and says, well, these cases don't really line up with what we did. Epic is trying to steal a base here, is trying to steal the ball. And Judge, you should look at these cases closely. And I would expect if Apple does actually respond to this document, that this whole line will be discussed in their brief. If we actually go and look at this particular case a little bit more closely, we see open pantry doesn't control because plaintiffs did not owe franchise fees for goods. The rationale of the Kelly cases does apply to rent, however, since plaintiffs used the premises leased to them by open pantry. What plaintiffs did receive in exchange for the franchise fees were services designed to effectuate defendant's scheme, merchandising, bookkeeping, and advertising services. Buyers in the other cases, which they are rejecting this lower court's decision, did not risk losing their businesses by refusing to pay their debts. All that was at stake was a possible loss of profit. So if we look at just these three components, which Epic is again trying to use to justify their request for an injunction, Epic is not at risk of losing its business. The iOS portion of Fortnite is minor. The Unreal Engine portion of iOS is, is minor, and Epic doesn't really dispute that, although that can come up for contention amongst the various documents. All that is at stake is a possible loss of profit. Furthermore, the rationale of the Kelly cases does apply to rent since plaintiffs use the premises leased to them by Open Pantry is a question as well. Is what Apple is selling rented access to their App Store sales facility? of which the price for that rent is a 30% commission on their fees. If that is in fact the case, then Epic received something. Epic had Fortnite on their store. Epic received money for V-Buck sales through iOS and Apple got nothing for that money. Does Epic owe that money? If they do owe that money, these are the kinds of things that result in the denial of a claim under this line of Kelly cases. So this is what lawyers do, right? And I wanted to take this deep dive just to kind of show exactly what's going on here. I also wanted to just briefly talk about this other case that they referenced because this is what they're putting in. It's a big footnote. They want the court to pay attention to this. See also German versus Times Mirror in which a termination might be enjoinable even if done pursuant to contract if the contractual clause fosters an unlawful anti-competitive scheme. That's a great quote. Maybe that helps Epic out. But if you actually go and you look at the case in question, you see that it's one where they denied an injunction. This is an appeal from an order denying appellant's motion for preliminary injunction. We affirm appellant was one of 19 persons who filed an antitrust action against Times Mirror. Appellant was notified on April 1974 of his impending termination pursuant to provision in German's home, dele home delivery dealer agreement allowing Times Mirror to terminate on 30 days written notice. That rings a bell, right? The letter of termination states that the action had been taken because of German's role in an April 14th, 1974 altercation with a longtime customer of the company and his son. Appellant contends that the real reason for his termination was not that stated by the Times, but rather was retaliation for his initiation of an antitrust action against the paper and for his efforts to expand his operations beyond the territory and class of customers assigned to him. Appellant argues that the district court could not properly conclude that he had failed to show the requisite likelihood of success. A dealer who has filed an antitrust action against his supplier should be immune from termination, he contends, subject only to such equitable defense as unclean hands. We find no support for appellant's claim to a special immunity from termination. The purposes of the antitrust laws deal with promoting competition, not 
with extending unsatisfactory contractual relationships beyond their stipulated periods of effectiveness. So they not only used their 30 days to terminate this gentleman, they could have used their 30 days to terminate for convenience because the antitrust laws aren't interested in extending unsatisfactory contractual relationships beyond their stipulated periods of effectiveness. That's the actual line from this contract, from this case that Epic cited. Then they cite this line. A termination might be enjoinable even if done pursuant to contract if the contractual clause relied upon were being used to foster an unlawful anti-competitive scheme. However, in this case, the court found no evidence to support appellant's claim that the termination was retaliatory and little likelihood that he would be able to show that the action was not taken for the reasons stated by the company. So understand this, right? If Epic had just sued Apple for antitrust and then Apple said, all right, we're terminating for convenience, even with our right to do so, Epic would have a much stronger case to make that Apple was just acting in retaliation against their lawsuit. Instead, what Epic did was breach their contract in four or five different ways. And then Apple says, okay, forget the antitrust lawsuit. You're welcome to bring that. We're not retaliating against you. What we're doing is we're getting rid of you because you breached our trust. You breached our trust in our agreement. You violated our app review policies and we don't brook to people that breach our trust. There is no question that Apple has a reason to terminate this contract outside of just Epic bringing this antitrust action. And because they have that reason that Epic gave to them that exists in all of these cases that Epic actually cites in their own brief, Apple's case probably looks stronger than when Epic started this line of argumentation. Finally, they say third-party payment processing is not a security threat. Apple opposes Epic Direct Pay to protect its monopoly. Epic is a respected, well-established company. That's, I think, apropos of nothing, but maybe designed to defend against Apple saying we don't trust Epic. Epic would suffer incalculable reputational harm if it tried to sneak in malware. And this, I agree with. When we looked at Apple's document last week, one of the things that I said was that Apple went way, way, way too far by suggesting that Epic and Unreal could just go and steal financial banking information or surreptitiously place foreign agents in the country or do whatever that it wanted to do with with those particular issues. Apple should have presented that a little bit more genteelly, a little bit more functionally in a way that a judge or Hogue here at Virtual Legality could understand. And instead they went with all of these very, very bad things and Epic rightly defends it with this simple line. Look, judge, this isn't a vacuum. If Epic does those things, they will have reputational harm, absolutely. And maybe that's not good enough, but Epic's right on that score. They also say, well, established hotfix mechanism a couple more times. And they say nothing about the requested injunction would limit Apple's ability to terminate accounts or even developers, which is a weird parenthetical. I don't, I don't think they mean that Apple can terminate developers. That sounds a little bit like hit squads. Maybe Apple has a hit squad. Who's to say? That harm users by introducing malware, hurt security, or compromise privacy. Now, that's a funny one, that last one for Epic to bring up, because, of course, Epic has been under all sorts of fire for compromising privacy through the Epic Game Store. Here we've got an article from last year. Epic Games has responded to multiple accusations saying that the Epic Games launcher is scanning for and collecting users' Steam information without first requesting permission, which was responded to pretty quickly by Epic once it was found out, but which a reasonable mind could suggest wouldn't have been changed if Epic wasn't found out and presents these kinds of concepts of compromising privacy. 
So if you've got a company with a history of articles like those that Apple can present to the court and they say, okay, now they've tried to sneak code onto our hardware. Judge, what are we supposed to do? It's pretty compelling from where I'm sitting. Apple suggests there is no harm to Epic because of Apple's purported right to terminate the developer agreements at any time for any reason for any Epic affiliate. But the contracts do not permit Apple to terminate separate entities' contracts for their affiliates' breach of a separate contract. Apple's having done this thousands of times in the past is no, no excuse. And I agree broadly with this. This is another area where I said Apple should have hit this a little harder in their own documentation. However, Epic's also wrong on one specific piece of it, which is that the developer agreements can be terminable on 30 days notice for convenience, period. So Apple does have that right. It doesn't require breach of every single contract. There are contracts that are part of this whole package of contracts that would require a breach or at least some kind of concept of a cross default that you'd have to really push if you were Apple. But I'm fully in agreement with Epic saying that Apple having done it a lot doesn't make it legal. The fact that Apple has taken this tack doesn't make it legal. It just means that their contracts were written wrong. There should have been a cross default provision if this is the way that Apple wanted to use its contracts. The fact that it's not in there creates a problem when you've got a litigation like this one. So I think Epic is both right and wrong here. I think Apple does have broad rights to limit some of the contracts for for convenience and can't get out of some other contracts or will have a lot of difficulty in doing so. Importantly, the threatened termination is intended to further Apple's anti-competitive scheme and as such is itself illegal. The law imposes a duty to deal on a monopolist like Apple when, one, it unilaterally terminates a voluntary and profitable course of dealing, two, The only conceivable rationale or purpose is to sacrifice short-term benefits in order to obtain higher profits in the long run from the exclusion of competition. And three, the refusal to deal involves products that the defendant already sells in the existing market to other similarly situated customers. Here, Apple is attempting unilaterally to terminate voluntary and profitable contracts with the express purpose of eliminating competition, denying Epic accounts and developer tools that Apple makes available to all developers. Now, that's focused on accounts and developer tools, but we should also take a look at this in particularity, right? Because they quote Qualcomm, they're really quoting Aspen Skiing, which is what's adopted by the Qualcomm court. But if we look at these conditions, basically none of them are met, right? The unilateral termination of a voluntary and profitable course of dealing might be true, but also might not be true after Epic has changed up what their course of dealing is, right? If there's a direct payment option, maybe Apple makes nothing from them. So that change in and of itself suggests a problem with voluntary and profitable course of dealing. The only conceivable rationale is a pretty high burden, only conceivable, of which is to sacrifice short-term benefits in order to obtain higher profits in the long run from the exclusion of competition means that the only reason you would do this is to try to get rid of a competitor. And here you've got a lot of reasons to do it. They breached your contract. They did it surreptitiously. They threatened you to do it. They've got a marketing campaign against you. You don't like them. You know, there's all these reasons. There are 5,000 rationales that Apple could have to do this. The refusal to deal involves products that the defendant already sells in the existing market to other similarly situated customers. I, I dare say no one is similarly situated to where Epic is right now trying to put through this direct payment option. But more importantly, the actual product or service is access to the iOS, is app distribution, is in-app payment processing. And Apple doesn't give that to anybody that has violated their contracts. 
And so you don't have this situation. This was designed for something else entirely. As we see in the blue, the court here in Qualcomm also found that the district court's application of Aspen skiing in this case ignored the Supreme Court's subsequent warning in Trinco that the Aspen skiing exception should be applied only in rare circumstances. Or as the court said, in Aspen skiing, what the defendant refused to provide to its competitor was a product that it already sold at retail. To oversimplify, lift tickets representing a bundle of service to skiers. Similarly, in Auto Tail, Otter Tail Power Co. versus United States, the defendant was already in the business of providing a service to certain customers and then refused to provide the same service to certain other customers. In the present case, by contrast, the services allegedly withheld are not otherwise marketed or available to the public. So you've got a situation here where they're cutting off the Unreal Engine, potentially, and bare, bare minimum, the kind of developer tools and things to Epic Games, and they aren't otherwise doing it just because they're trying to get rid of Epic. Aspen is at or near the outer boundary of Section 2 liability, this court says, because the complaint does not allege that Verizon ever engaged in a voluntary course of dealing with its rivals. Its prior conduct sheds no light upon whether its lapses from the legally compelled dealing were anti-competitive. So what you've got here is something that doesn't mean anything in Epic versus Apple, right? You're definitely going to fail the only conceivable rationale test. And then it really depends on what we're talking about with respect to products. When you talk about products that the defendant already sells in an existing market to other similarly situated customers, Epic has breached its agreement. It hasn't even fought that. And no, Apple doesn't offer its developer tools, doesn't offer access to its iOS, doesn't allow in-app payment processing or anything else to folks that have breached its contract. So this is nothing, but Epic is just putting it in there to throw all the darts at the wall. Epic's requested relief would further the public interest. Apple does not dispute that harm to these users and developers is against the public interest. Instead, Apple argues that an injunction would contravene the public's strong interest in holding private parties to their agreement, but that principle applies only to lawful agreements. Epic has taken a stand that these are unlawful. Apple's suggestion that an injunction would place other App Store developers at a competitive disadvantage vis-a-vis -vis Epic is likewise meritless. Apple's sudden concern about equity and the concern that some app developers would be forced to subsidize the tools that allow Epic to succeed rings hollow, given Apple's repeated assertion that over 80% of app developers pay nothing for those tools. Presumably, in Apple's view, they are subsidized by those who do. The requested injunction would not prevent Apple from enforcing rules that actually pertain to security or privacy. So you look at all this taken in its totality, and basically they want to have that merit fight in all of these sections, right? If the Apple contract is unlawful for antitrust reasons, then yes, then they don't have to abide by unlawful contracts. But it assumes that merit question. Everything that Epic puts forth in this section and elsewise all relates back to whether or not they have a high likelihood of success on the merits. And unless the court changes its opinion, which they can do, at this preliminary injunction level, then a lot of these arguments just aren't winners by the way they're framed. Now, they do say rightly that when Apple says that if we allow Epic in and others will subsidize Epic, that others are already subsidizing those 80% of app developers who pay nothing. That's true. But I think Apple views that as the business model and the other developers view it as the business model for those that are otherwise complying with the Apple ecosystem to make sure it grows big and strong. If they have to subsidize Epic, who is not complying with that ecosystem, potentially harming that ecosystem, which is something that Epic really hasn't grappled with, then Apple says you shouldn't be subsidizing that party. And I think they're right on that score. 
as well. Apple's attempt to downplay the harm it inflicts on users of Fortnite and Unreal Engine is also unpersuasive. Fortnite is a forum for shared experiences, including concerts, movies, roundtables, and gaming. For the intensely social experience that Fortnite offers, the loss of even 10% of users impacts the entire Fortnite community. Estranging all iOS users has resulted in many-fold more disrupted connections that affect non-iOS friends and family who keenly feel the loss and undermines Epic's ability to reach the crucial mass necessary to achieve the metaverse. Yep, see that Fortnite argument didn't hold for the court. It's not going to hold for him again. Unreal Engine is their better fight, no question. Contrary to Apple's statement that Unreal Engine is used by a minuscule fraction of iPhone apps, Apple's own witness testified that Unreal Engine is a popular development engine used by many developers on iOS and other platforms. Yes. So note that those two statements aren't contradictory. Unreal Engine can both be used by a minuscule fraction of iPhone apps and can be a popular development engine used by many developers on iOS and other platforms. And there's no question Unreal is popular across the video game spectrum. The question is how popular is it on iPhone? And it's not contradiction. And the judge can look at this and see the same thing that I do and say, those aren't contradictory. And what are you trying to pull? Apple's claim that its retaliation against Unreal Engine would not harm developers because of the availability of Unity, an Unreal Engine competitor, is false. Unreal Engine developers have put time and resources into projects reliant on Unreal Engine and moving away would cause them significant harm. They don't want people going to Unity. And finally, they finish off, therefore, it is Apple that should be enjoined to prevent the harm to third parties relying on Fortnite and other epic businesses including Unreal Engine. And I do think there is some importance to the fact that Unreal Engine is the very last phrase you see in this document, that Epic understands that the fight that they can win most likely is the fight to protect Unreal Engine. And I know this video ran a little long. I wanted to do a little bit of a deeper dive into some of the precedents that Epic was citing, some of the issues that I had with those precedents, some of the arguments that they were making. I promise to try to bring these videos in in a shorter time frame in the future, but I love talking about these things. I hope you love talking about them with me. Apple might well make one final response to Epic on this before the currently scheduled preliminary injunction meeting. I will cover it if I can. Uh, things are pretty busy here at the firm at Hogue Law, I am happy to say. But at the end of the day, I do love doing these things. We talk about these kinds of things in virtual legality all the time. Please leave your comments to this video. I would love to hear how you feel about Epic's final push, how you feel about the language they have used, about the comparisons that they make between things like the PlayStation and the phone, whether that should rule the day or the other cases that they have cited here, the other things that I have referenced, the issues that I have with some of Epic's rhetoric. I love hearing from each and every one of you. And thank you so much for hanging in there to the end of this wonderful episode of Virtual Legality. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.